You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. It's episode 16 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast, and I had the sincere privilege of speaking today with Katrin Owen. Katrin is the Deputy City Manager of Communications and Engagement for the City of Edmonton. So you can imagine that we will touch on some of the aspects of how collaboration shows up for a city staff, elected councillors, and basically one million citizens. I had the opportunity to meet Katrin through a meeting of the City of Edmonton's Guiding Coalition for Public Engagement, on which I volunteer. And after hearing her perspectives on city building and on engaging citizens, I was excited when she agreed to join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Katrin Owen, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So you're the city manager of communications and engagement for the city of Edmonton. So what what does a day in your life at the city look like? What's included? What kind of interesting and cool things do you get to do? I'm a deputy city manager, which means I report to the city manager. And the city manager is the only employee of council other than the auditor. So if the city manager is the CEO, I am a vice president. And there are seven of us in those roles. And we each have a portfolio that we take care of. And mine, as you mentioned, is communications and engagement which means that we essentially run all of the communication services that a large corporation of our size with 12,000 staff serving a million Edmontonians might provide. So the entire spectrum of communication services lives within our portfolio. And so a typical day for me is to be in a lot of meetings, setting a lot of strategic direction, that very talented people that I work with then implement and bring to life. So what does collaborating with a million people kind of look like? I can't imagine that that's a simple thing to start to undertake. And where do you focus that kind of a collaborative effort, I guess? Right. Well, I think what is at the bedrock of collaboration in a public sector setting like this is the fact that the governors of the organization, the 13 members of council, along with the mayor, are duly elected every four years. So the very nature of democracy has a collaborative quality to it. Those people get their jobs at the pleasure of the electorate. So right off the bat, our system says, your voice is important. You get to choose who runs this city, and they will ultimately be accountable to you. So I think there's a collaborative foundation set right there in the democratic process. Now, how the day-to-day application of that collaborative principle plays out for the million people is, as you describe, much more complicated. And we do it in a number of ways. Philosophically, we do it by saying we fundamentally believe in the principle of listen, learn, and lead. Only when we listen to Edmontonians and learn from them, because every one of them has a unique experience and they know things we don't know, only when we listen and learn from them will we lead effectively. 
So foundationally, we believe in that, and that becomes a driving principle of how we do business. And then we have to create numerous systems and processes to bring that to life. It's not enough to believe it. We actually have to action it. And we do that in lots of ways. We have a research division that talks to Edmontonians all the time about various topics. So that's a a listening mode. We have an engagement division whose job it is to talk to Edmontonians on any number of topics. And we can get into the specifics during this conversation if you wish. We have 37 agencies, boards, and commissions that are appointed by city council, which themselves are collaborative entities. That's council saying, we believe in the voice of the citizenry, and here is yet another instrument of being able to make your voice heard. So you have to believe in it philosophically and then have it play out organizationally, systemically, and operationally. Well, I like how you describe that coming from the roots of democracy up into the involvement of citizens in the city. Do you think expectations around being involved and included have they're they're changing and and how do you see that sort of playing out in Edmonton? Well, I think the customer service revolution of the last 50 years has played a big part in this. I think historically all kinds of institutions including municipal governments were monolithic, remote, and did their thing and expected the recipients of their services to simply be grateful that it was taking place. I think when you've got a citizenry across the globe, particularly on this continent, that says, I want to, I want to have my voice heard on everything from the quality of the eggs at my breakfast place to the comfort of the mattress at my hotel to the speed of the service at a store. When you've got those kinds of customer service expectations in every one of our day-to-day realms, you're going to have to, as a public institution, meet those customer service expectations as well. Has that created a bit of a rub or a challenge, I guess, for cities to be able to respond in the same way, say, an individual business. Like a lot of the examples you gave were, you know, an individual business, a hotelier or something like that. Is it more difficult? Well, I mean, I guess we should go to where are the challenges that you see in a city taking on that kind of a role? And, and how do you sort of balance between, we just want to tell you about something, the communication side, and we want to engage on something. So how do you navigate that? Mm, lots of questions in, in, <laughs> embedded in there. I think the first thing I want to say is governments have to be responsive to what citizens want. And if the social shifts are that people have a say in the decisions that affect them and in the services they receive, we too have to be similarly responsive and let people have a say. You cannot have any government entity particularly at the municipal level where things are very transactional and pocketbook oriented, you just can't have government saying, we'll decide and we'll just let you know. Where does it become difficult? Well, it becomes difficult if you operate under the erroneous assumption that you're going to make everybody happy. 
that way madness lies. It is impossible to take into account the particular wishes of every one of the million people that we serve. But we do have to operate with a greatest good for the greatest number philosophy. We've got to think about being inclusive and compassionate and sensible and service-oriented and be courageous enough to be unpopular sometimes as well. Are there certain kinds of questions or topics that are sort of, from a municipal perspective, are better suited to a collaborative or, or I guess, a more, a deeper involvement type of approach? Yeah, I think, for example, where when we're in your neighborhood, renewing the sidewalks and redoing the alleyways, we're pretty much on your property. And so when we do work at the at the neighborhood level, I think it's imperative that we are collaborative, that we talk a lot, that we explain the why, that we where we can customize things for communities in a way that meets their particular needs. I think whenever we're doing something that affects your day-to-day life, wherever possible, we should be taking your perspective and your viewpoints into account. Same with something like redesigning the bus routes. Necessary to do when you watch empty buses travel from certain areas into the downtown and then you watch people having to wait as three very full buses go by. Clearly, that is a signal that bus routing needs to be thought about. But we would be foolhardy to do that work in the absence of bus patrons. So there are many, many decisions. Those are just two examples that will be better if we make them collaboratively and will be wiser decisions if we listen to the users of the service. Does that involvement often extend into, I guess, creating the solutions? So some of what you were talking about was was almost it sounded a little bit like it was consultative in nature. So you're, you know, we're we're making sure people are aware of what's happening and things like that. Does it also lead to like fairly deep involvement in solving whatever the problem is, a bus route problem or a sidewalk or who knows, city strategy type of thing? Does it go that far often? Well, as you're very aware, Scott, the spectrum for engagement is a continuum. Moving from advice to making decisions, that sort of co-creation end of the spectrum. And what we have to do is calibrate appropriately which projects or initiatives are advisory in nature, which are communities refining an idea that we've had, which are co-creation projects, and which are a handing off, in a way, of the decision to the citizenry, which is what some of those agencies, boards, and commissions do. They essentially say, we won't do that anymore. We're going to ask you to do that. So across that spectrum, we have to determine what mode we're in and what advice we seek and what input we seek, because the worst thing you can do is set up an expectation that then you don't deliver on. If all you're asking for is advice, then better be clear with your stakeholders right at the outset 
that they don't actually have a hand in co-creating. They're, they're simply giving advice. The communication of expectations and the delivery on those expectations is critical. Otherwise, you erode trust and then people won't participate in anything because you haven't been true to your word. Are there examples that you can use to illustrate sort of when the city has gone to maybe not even a full co-creation end of things, but even just more into the collaborative space where citizens have a deeper hand in the, whether it's defining the problem or creating a solution? Are there examples that come to mind? Yeah, I think the one that for me is the most vivid and the most exciting is our two guiding strategic documents at the city of Edmonton. One is called Connect Edmonton, and it's our strategic plan. And the other is called the City Plan, which is how we deliver on the strategic plan through particular directions and and choices. Both of those were co-created with citizens. Literally thousands of people participated in the development of those two documents. So in a way, you could argue that the City of Edmonton's strategic plan is Edmonton's strategic plan because it was developed with Edmontonians. They weren't reacting to a draft. They were at the early stages, brainstorming, shaping future direction, sharing their hopes and dreams for their city. That was a true co-creation exercise. How did those exercises go in terms of what was the what I'm kind of trying to get to is a little bit of the feel. So what was your sense of how citizens participated? Were they, I guess what I'm thinking is, and oftentimes when I've collaborated with citizens or stakeholders, a lot of times the energy just goes way up and the enthusiasm goes way up. Was that sort of what you were seeing in that, in those two plans you talked about? Is that the kind of reaction you were getting from citizens? I think the people who are generous enough to give their time and their energy to those conversations are typically excited to be a part of them. What we have to do on an ongoing basis is really ensure that we include as many diverse voices as possible in those kinds of conversations. Because what tends to happen is those enthusiasts you've just described who are high energy and really excited to be a part of these strategic conversations tend to fall into a fairly narrow demographic and psychographic band. You know, they've got the means to get to an open house or they are not overly burdened by their day-to-day survival issues. So you know, without painting too broad a picture, they fit into a fairly classic sort of middle-class type. It's important that we not just hear from people whose lives are already somewhat privileged. So then it sounds like there was a fair bit of effort put into in these two plans, making sure that they were that broad and, and inclusive. Is that what you're trying to get to here? Is that the, the exercise that you guys went through was actually fairly inclusive? We need to continue to keep that uppermost in our minds. But yes, it was a feature of the engagement process on both of those plans. So we did a range of consultative activities. We had pizza parties in people's living rooms. We had open houses. We had research where people could just online give their viewpoints. You've got to be absolutely 
multi-channel if you're going to try and get to more than just the usual contributor. What surprised you from that that whole exercise? Was there anything that sort of jumped out as a as maybe an unusual something you heard or or a response or maybe something that was created in the city plan that you were particularly interested in or so just so I'm not being fraudulent, I didn't run those rooms. I didn't run those conversations. It was people who were tasked with that, who work at the city of Edmonton. If I could speak for them, though, I'm sure what they would say was what struck them is just how generous people were with their ideas. It is quite something to unscrew your your head and unzip your sternum and say, here's my heart, here's what I care about, and here are my ideas, here's what's important to me. And people do that very, very authentically and generously in order to build a city of the future that meets their needs, not just practically, but aspirationally as well. So I'm pretty confident that the people who did run those conversations of all kinds in all kinds of different types of rooms would say, there was an extraordinary spirit of generosity and optimism as people contributed in the many, many ways that they did. As the deputy city manager, you often sort of are the interface between counselors and sort of the, the frontline people that are in community members and that sort of thing. How do you navigate that space? Are there, I don't want to point to sort of issues or challenges, but how, do, how does that dynamic work between a set of elected officials who you've said you know, previously are put in place to sort of speak for on behalf of citizens and the citizens themselves. How does that sort of interaction work? And do you often get sort of in the middle of things? Well, for me, it's not a tense dynamic. Our counselors are themselves public engagement specialists. What they learned door knocking when they first got elected, what they continue to learn from their constituents when they have their own open house discussions with them, Many of them pre-COVID would have ongoing discussions with their constituents in coffee shops and in open house settings. Now they do more of that work virtually, of course, but they've got a very good handle on what's on their constituents' minds. They also, because they sit in chambers and listen to the big picture discussions, They're also thinking not just about their own constituents in that particular geography, but they're thinking about the entire city. So they're serving their constituents and they're serving the million residents of Edmonton. I don't think there is a dissonance between what we know as an administration about citizens' aspirations through the work that we do, the research, the engagement, the listening and what they know. We tend to understand citizens' concerns in very similar ways. So it's kind of a positive feedback loop in a way where what counselors might know is supplemented and built on by administration and vice versa. That'd be a fair way to describe it, yeah. Precisely. In fact, we value the insight that counselors bring to our discussions because of that on-the-ground relationship building that they do in their constituencies. So you mentioned COVID having a sort of an impact, obviously, and and pushing us all into the virtual world. Has that translated to particular challenges for the city? Well, it has meant that the bulk of our public engagement over the last year or so has been in the digital realm. So like the rest of the world, we pivoted to doing things that we used to do in person in the virtual world. And it's amazing how adaptable 
and resilient we humans are. Everyone's figured that out and has remained actively contributing to the city building work that we do together. Have you noticed at all whether uh, participation has increased or decreased? The reason I ask is because I've just noticed in some of my own engagements that as soon as you make it virtual, now access has gone up, <laughs> gone up and you actually tend to reach more people, but from a narrower, as you said, sort of a demographic, sort of a, more of the sort of the typical people who have access. Have you noticed any of that? Or maybe it's an unfair question to ask. Yeah, through our digital engagement channels, we've actually seen an uptick in participation. So for example, just to give you some stats, in 2020, we created 62 digital engagement opportunities with close to 8,000 people participating. And we've turned those digital engagement opportunities into a community itself. So we've now got on tap a digital community of people who will respond to and have conversations with us about any number of issues. And it numbers almost 4,000 participants. Similarly, in 2020, what we call our Insight Community, which is essentially our research panel, created 35 digital surveys that resulted in 72,000 responses. And that community has 13,500 members and constantly growing. I think when you can do things, you know, in your soft pants on the sofa, it is a little bit easier than if you have to go somewhere. Well, I can testify to that, the appeal of doing things in jammy pants. I, yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been at home for the last year as well and, and can completely understand. You know, I kind of want to try and shine a light on some of the successes of the city's collaborative efforts. And I, I'm kind of curious. So you mentioned that the Connect Edmonton and the city plan. Are there other examples that you wanted to, to maybe shine a light on that would illustrate the city's success in the collaborative space? Yeah, here's one that I think is very timely and very interesting, and that is the recent work that was done to rename the wards in Edmonton. It's a great example of community collaboration, and it has an interesting twist because this work was not done broadly by many, many contributors. It was done narrowly but deeply with a group of Indigenous women who, using First Nations knowledge systems, renamed the previously numbered electoral wards and gave them meaningful Indigenous names that honoured the range of Indigenous peoples who have historically called Edmonton home. That was a fascinating example of using a collaborative methodology to do something quite groundbreaking and at the same time being respectful that you had to have a certain knowledge base of your own and a historical context of your own in order to be able to contribute meaningfully to that work. Can I just ask, if I understood correctly, you also said they were using some of the Indigenous essentially decision-making systems as well. So it was. It sounds like it went a little bit beyond 
sort of standard collaborative practice to a more of a cross-cultural collaborative practice. Sounds like if that's the case, it was very groundbreaking and that it was a mixture of sort of Western and Indigenous process as well. Is that a fair way to describe it? I would take it one step further. I don't think there was any Western imposition on the process. Once the women were assembled, they drove the process and chose how it would unfold. So all kinds of things transpired that would be unfamiliar to those of us who are not steeped in Indigenous ways. So there process began with ceremony. It was infused throughout with ceremony so that they could connect to their own elders and their own knowledge keepers in order to keep their own work on a positive trajectory. So it was not a process that you would have designed in your practice or that I might have designed in my practice. It was very much Indigenous-led and directed by the participants. I think that's a fantastic story to shine a light on because often when I'm working with people and talking to people about collaboration, the cross-cultural element is a big a big fear factor in that there's an unknown as soon as you have different cultures interacting And I'm curious if you were to provide some advice to somebody, another municipality or something like that around that process that you went through, what would you advise them? You know, if they were a little bit on that sort of fearful side or a little bit apprehensive. I would say, let go. Don't feel you have to control everything. Trust that if you are seeking wisdom from elsewhere, you will get it. If you suspend your tendency to organize, orchestrate, and control, it was an exercise in in letting go in order to get a much greater gift than we could have designed ourselves. I like that, uh, that if you're seeking wisdom from elsewhere, then let it happen. Let that wisdom come to you and quit trying to muck around with it. I like that very much. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to add? Well, I think... What I would like to stress is no organization that wants to pursue meaningful public engagement can do it by process alone. You have to fundamentally believe that the decisions that your organization will make in a collaborative way with stakeholders will ultimately be better decisions. So you have to have that foundational belief in the rightness of this work. Otherwise, you're checking a box, you're doing what you think you ought, you're being perhaps politically correct, you're trying to score an organizational point. If you don't fundamentally believe that they're will be better outcomes when you include different perspectives. You won't be doing this work with a true heart. It sort of sounds a little bit like there's also an element of vulnerability in there, in that in order to to sort of open yourself to that kind of a discussion, and I'm testing this, this thought with you, so in order to have that kind of discussion, you have to kind of just be open, like you said in the previous little bit, 
about being open to what you get, being open and almost a little bit self-reflective in, in a way. Is that, is that kind of your take as well? Yeah, I think the, the very act of including other people in your planning and in your decision-making and in your learning requires you to be vulnerable. And it requires you to move from a position of thinking, we know what's best, to we will do what's right when we've learned more. So there's an inherent vulnerability in being inclusive and collaborative. It's easier, one might argue, to just decide and be absolutely sure that you're right and then drive the rightness of your decision home. But I think we all know how flawed that is. <laughs> I think we, we've seen that uh, in spades and in various places. And how unacceptable it is, particularly when you're publicly funded. It is imperative to ask the million people who fund a city what their views are on various aspects of running it. That's not a nice to do. That's a, that's a must do. Right. And it even, I would argue that it, it does go to that rightness. The management of the city is for the city, even beyond the, the funding. So I like that your notion about essentially bringing the people of the city into that conversation. So, so I always ask people for book suggestions towards the end of my, of my episodes. And so I'm curious if you have a book or have a book suggestion or another resource, doesn't have to be a book, I guess, that you would typically give as a gift or refer people to on a regular basis? Is there anything that fits into that category? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I am a big believer in fiction being a source of wisdom, not just nonfiction. So I read novels and I think they're a source of insight into the human condition and into how we operate as a species. One of the books that I've read in the last year that really struck me as important was Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me, which is about artificial intelligence and what it means to be human. And I found myself reflecting on the questions that that story poses often. So when something sticks with me, I, I know it's worth letting other people know about. So I read a lot of fiction and I'm and I don't believe that's entertainment. I believe that's educational and insightful as well. In addition to my passion for fiction, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the great Canadian journalist and author and thinker, Malcolm Gladwell. I think anything by this very, very smart social scientist brings insight and wisdom and fun to the table. He's a remarkable mind. I do spend a bit of time listening to his podcasts and reading his books. So I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on the value of the kind of content that Malcolm Gladwell puts out. So thank you for those, both of those. And I know that you've got listeners from all over the globe and we're proud of Malcolm Gladwell in Canada. So shout out to him. <laughs> I've always been really appreciative of the kind of thinking he brings to things, like the looking at things from a different lens. That's always what's appealed to me from either his books or his podcast is just that let's flip things around and look at it from some different angle that you wouldn't normally consider. Well, he also does a lovely job of finding the really 
interesting intersection between stories and research. So he brings his research to life through story, which is makes him eminently readable and listenable. Yes, I would agree. When you think about the world of collaboration, is there a leader or another figure that you would admire for their collaborative mentality? Well, I it was fabulous to watch Barack Obama be a collaborative politician. I think there are world leaders who do collaboration better than others. He, he, in my opinion, was one of them. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I want to say thank you for taking the time today to talk to me a little bit about the City of Edmonton's sort of collaborative work and kind of give me you know, your insights into that world. It's been, been lots of fun, so thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Wow, that was a, a great conversation. Catherine gave a pretty good look into the machinery of municipal government and how collaboration can be part of how a large urban municipality is run. Central to so much of what she mentioned is this idea that you have to start with a belief that decisions and actions that you take collaboratively are going to be better than if you make those same decisions alone. And we can see how that belief translates to the city's ethos of listen, learn, and lead. The city has definitely done some really interesting collaborative work And I was especially fascinated by Katrin's example of asking a group of Indigenous women to direct and drive an Indigenous process to rename the city's wards. This is really groundbreaking work, and I really appreciated hearing that example. Thanks, Katrin, for taking the time for our conversation today, and thank you for listening. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.